This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. there everybody welcome back to another episode of all crime no cattle a texas true crime podcast i am shay and i'm erin and we're here to deliver you some more true crime content but at the top of the show we have a special announcement um and it's something that erin and i have been wanting to get to you guys and i know it's been a while since you heard from us but uh we had a few things that we wanted to let y'all know that's going on Hey everyone! Yeah, it has been a while. Unfortunately, we were unable to put out episodes for quite a few months. As y'all know, this podcast is just the two of us, and we both have lives and careers outside of it. And it's just been very hard to maintain really any kind of schedule, no matter how hard we've tried to make it work. Mm -hmm. But we've had lots of time over this break to kind of think and discuss And we have decided to officially shut down the podcast. That's correct. It's been a really good run, and we want to thank everyone who has listened and supported the show over the years. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the the listeners and all your wonderful comments, the Facebook group, uh, all of our Patreon supporters who are just wonderful. Everyone who supported us along this journey, from our network to, you know, everybody involved, other podcasters who have helped us and pitched in with tips and tricks or advice at certain times that's been really great and uh you know i think we've learned a lot throughout the process and uh, hopefully that shows in the quality of our work that we've delivered over the years and you know when we first started those podcasts those early episodes sound way different than what the show (laughs) sounds like now but you know it was a great run and we had millions and millions of of downloads of the show so that's we we got to get on TV at one point because of the show you were in a newspaper because of your podcasting <laughs> accolades yeah. so i think you know it's we were highly recognized we went to a podcasting festival we were on panels and all kinds of fun stuff we got to live the dream of being true crime podcasters for a little while and hopefully we left our mark and um yeah I'm happy to uh, close this wonderful chapter and move on to the next stage of our lives and our next adventure. Yeah. So in doing so, we also have good news. We wanted the show to kind of go out with a bang. So we have two more cases 
that we plan to cover. That's going to be today's episode, and then we'll have a final two-part series coming out next month. And of course, we do still have all of our Patreon episodes available over at patreon.com slash allcrimenocattle. And that's going to be all reorganized as well. So if you're interested in bonus episodes, go ahead and check that out. Yeah, and we will keep the podcast up there on patreon.com. And we'll also keep it up uh, everywhere else you find the podcast normally. So if you want to go back and re-listen to episodes, they'll still live on. So again, thank you so much, everyone, for all your support. We love you all. And now let's move on to today's case. It's a really interesting one set in one of Fort Worth's richest neighborhoods back in 1992. And it's a story that really shook the whole community. As far as sources go, for the most part, I relied on the local newspaper, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, who reported heavily on the story. The Fort Worth-based television channel KXAS also aired news segments and footage from the trials, and that all can be found on the website The Portal to Texas History, which is a collection of historical documents overseen by the University of North Texas Libraries. We'll have a link for that as well as the other sources in the episode notes. Now, there are also two pretty decent TV programs that covered this case as well. One is Power, Privilege, and Justice. The other is Snapped Killer Couples. Now, as usual, both of these are a little cheesy, but they have a lot of crime scene footage and interviews with some of the people involved. So they always serve as sort of an interesting watch, I think. Sure. Let's begin the story with Jack Coslow. After coming back home from the Vietnam War, where he had served as a helicopter pilot, Jack began a very successful career in banking. In 1970, he married a woman named Paula, and five years later, in February of 1975, the couple adopted a baby girl just four or five days old. They named the girl Christy Ann Coslow. However, the marriage eventually broke down, and by 1982, when Christy was seven, Jack and Paula were divorced. The divorce was not amicable, and in fact, it was quite contentious. The couple fought each other in the courts over the next several years, and it seems like this was mostly over child support issues. Oh, okay. And he's probably doing really well since he's in banking, so there's probably some financial stuff that has to go through. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Now, by this time, Jack had worked his way up the ladder for a bank located in Sunset Square in downtown Fort Worth called Texas American Bank, which would later be called Team Bank. In fact, Jack eventually became the bank's executive vice president and manager of commercial lending. That sounds important. Yeah, it does. I don't really know what it means, but it sounds important. (laughs) And at the bank, he met a woman named Karen Courtney, who was the vice president of the bank's national accounts lending department. So she also had a very high rank in the company. Karen was a graduate of UT Austin and had a master's degree in business administration from SMU. She was born and raised in Fort Worth and came from a very wealthy and fairly prominent family of oil and gas wildcatters. In fact, her uncle was oil man H.L. Sonny Brown, who made his fortune in Midland. When she was just a child, Sonny had arranged a trust for her that was worth several million dollars. Yeah, so he must have made all of his oil money when Midland like really popped off the first yeah. time when it had the big oil rush. Yeah, there. I think so. Oh, wow. So Karen was wealthy, educated, successful, and she and Jack really clicked. The two fell deeply in love and married in 1983. 
Not long after, Karen resigned her position at the bank and dedicated her life to charitable causes around Fort Worth, as well as becoming a sort of patron of the arts. Over the next decade, she served on boards and committees of many prominent Fort Worth institutions. For example, she was the recording secretary of the Fort Worth Garden Club and sat on the board for the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. She did a great amount of work for the Jewel Charity Ball, which is the main annual charity event benefiting the nonprofit Children's Hospital Cook Children's Medical Center. Oh. In fact, she served in many roles for the ball, including as secretary, treasurer, and chairwoman of the event. That sounds fancy. It is a very fancy event. You can check out pictures of it online. But perhaps Karen's strongest tie was with the Fort Worth Ballet Association, which is now known as the Texas Ballet Theater. Oh, I know of this organization because I have friends that I used to dance with when I was doing ballet oh, that's who eventually right. became a part of the Fort Worth Ballet. Yeah, exactly. Well, Karen and Jack served on the board of directors of the company, and Karen later served on the executive committee. Through these positions, she oversaw a lot of charity drives and fundraisers for the dance company. Very nice. In the late 1980s, Jack and Karen moved into a sprawling 4,000-square-foot two-story pink brick house at 4100 Clark Avenue in the Rivercrest area of West Fort Worth. Rivercrest. Yeah. Okay, so close to the country club, I'm assuming. That's right. So Mm -hmm. this whole area, since its beginnings in the early 1900s, has been one of the richest and ritziest neighborhoods in Fort Worth. Oh, yeah, it has. Now, technically, it is called Crestline. But everyone calls it Rivercrest because, just like you said, the houses surround the golf course at Rivercrest Country Club. Yeah. The city's oldest and fanciest course. It is definitely one of the the spots in Fort Worth that has giant homes, fancy cars, the lifestyles and the rich and the famous, the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the neighborhood is also characterized as being very low crime, very safe. Sure. Over the years, Jack's daughter Christy visited them frequently and even lived with them occasionally. However, for the most part, Christy lived with her mother Paula, only about a mile or so away, in another pretty upscale neighborhood called Monticello. Oh, yes, Monticello. So you you know about Monticello as well? Well, you know, I used to work as a landscaper and I used to work at a lot of fancy homes in both of these neighborhoods. Okay, so you're well aware that Monticello isn't necessarily a step down from Rivercrest. It's also yeah. a pretty nice neighborhood as well. Yeah, it's a lateral move. They're both extremely fancy in their own right. Yeah. Well, Jack and Karen became a well-liked and popular couple in Fort Worth, especially among the upper crust. And as the years passed, they seemed happy with their lives in Rivercrest and with each other. But the couple's entire world shattered in the early hours of March 12, 1992. Just after 3.30 a.m., Jack pounded at the front door of his neighbor's house across the street. The neighbors answered the door to find Jack wearing only boxers. His face was swollen and mangled. There was a large gash in his neck and he was completely covered in blood. Oh, God. The neighbors said Jack pleaded to them for help, saying that he and his wife had been beaten and robbed. While the neighbors called 911, they heard Jack continue to fret about Karen, saying, my wife, my wife's over there, somebody get to my wife. Emergency medical personnel and officers with the Fort Worth Police Department responded within minutes of the call. 
The lead investigators of the case became homicide detective Kurt Brannon, along with Sergeant Paul Kratz. Now, by the time they arrived, they described Jack as appearing groggy and incoherent. And in this state, he wasn't really able to provide any additional information before being rushed to Harris Methodist Hospital. Yeah, it sounded like he had some extensive wounds, at least on his head. Yes, he did. So nobody really knew what happened other than there was some sort of intruder. So while Jack Coslow went to the hospital, police entered the Coslow home. In the primary bedroom upstairs, they discovered Karen's lifeless body lying face down on the floor beside the bed. It was clear she'd been severely beaten about the head with a blunt object, and her throat had been slashed. The entire bedroom was a very grisly scene. There was blood everywhere, soaked into the carpets, splashed across all four walls of the room, and oddly enough, all over the telephone that sat on a night table beside the bed. Oh, wow, it does sound very grisly. Well, if there's blood all over the phone, did it look like someone had used it at all? Like if there were fingerprints on it or Yeah, there like was that? smudges of blood all over the headset of the phone. Oh, like the handset? Like I think that's what it's called, right? The handset that goes <laughs> on the so receiver? Weird. What do you even call that part of the phone? You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the part of the phone that you would pick up And all over the buttons of the phone. So, I mean, just smeared all over as if somebody with very bloody hands had tried to use it. Mm. And remember, Jack had been had gone to the neighbor's house to call the police. Interesting. Okay. Underneath a table, investigators found a buck knife with an ornate handle covered in blood and hair. This appeared to be the weapon used to slash Karen and Jack's throats. An empty shotgun that was identified as Jack's, as well as some shotgun shells, sat on the bed. On the floor, located about two feet into the doorway of the room, was a bullet hole made by a 32 caliber bullet. Near Karen's body, four unfired 38 caliber bullets were found. So no uh, shotgun holes were found near her body? or Nope. Okay. No, it doesn't appear that the shotgun had been used at all, but it does appear that there were two different handguns that had at least been used or at least present in the room during the attack, yet neither one of the two victims had suffered gunshot wounds. That's weird. There was just the hole in the floor. So somebody just came in and shot up the floor? Well, that's what it seemed like. And neither one of those guns was present at the scene, so they weren't recovered nor was the object that had caused Jack and Karen's blunt force injuries. Mm. But they did have the knife. Right, yes. Okay, so we do have one potential murder weapon. Yes. The crime scene extended into the bedroom's walk-in closet. Clothes and all sorts of items had been pulled out and dumped onto the ground, like the whole area had been searched. On one side of the closet was Jack's gun cabinet, where he kept his collection of shotguns. So the shotgun on the bed is Jack's. Okay. The cabinet was open and there were shotgun shells that had spilled out onto the ground. On the other side of the closet was a chest of drawers. It had also been ransacked with all the drawers pulled out and the contents in disarray. Like somebody looking for something specific. That's correct. And the drawers and the items inside were smeared with blood. So it was obvious that the person who had searched these items had hands that were covered in blood, and yet Mm. there were no fingerprints found anywhere. Oh, so maybe they're wearing gloves. Yes. 
This is this is intriguing. There's a lot going on at this crime scene. Yeah. Now, there are a few other pieces of evidence located in and around the house. For example, there were obvious signs of forced entry on the back door. It appeared to be pried open with some kind of tool, most likely a pry bar or a crowbar. Mm -hmm. That door led out to the back property, which was completely surrounded by a tall wooden fence with a gate. The gate had also been pried open with what appeared to be the same tool that had been used on the house. But it was pried open on the inside, not on the outside like you might expect. Oh, weird. Like, they, oh, like they were leaving and they got yes, out the back way. Oh, that's exactly okay. right. The pry bar had splintered some of the wood on the fence, and investigators found a small piece of latex surgical glove snagged on the wood. Well, there's so again, gloves. Yeah, that's right. So this is confirmation that the killer had worn gloves. Now, just outside of the back fence, there was a little alleyway with a couple of AC units. Investigators found two different shoe impressions on top of them. So it appeared that the killer, or killers, because remember, there are two different shoe impressions, oh. had used the AC units to boost their way up and over the fence. And then when, when they were done doing the attack inside, they again, like you said, had to pry open the gate in order to get mm -hmm. back out again. And when they did that, they snagged their glove yeah. on the fence. Now, again, the investigators' initial thinking was that this was a robbery gone wrong, based on what Jack had said, as well as the fact that it happened in this very upscale neighborhood. It's not a leap to think a house like the Coslows could be the target of a robbery, and that if so, there could have been some kind of altercation with the owners. But upon examining the crime scene, investigators began to notice things that didn't seem to fit that narrative. For example, besides the bloody primary bedroom and its closet that had clearly been tossed, the rest of the house appeared untouched. Hmm. There was a single trail of blood leading from the bedroom to the front door that appeared to be left behind by Jack when he went to the neighbor's house to get help. But other than that, nothing appeared disturbed. And investigators also didn't identify anything missing from the home. There were lots of small, valuable objects laying around that were still there. Hmm. Karen's expensive jewelry collection was still sitting in its place in the primary bedroom, the place we know that the attackers were in. And even though the whole closet had clearly been ransacked, investigators couldn't identify anything actually missing. So that didn't sound like robbery was the primary goal. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if it was like one specific item that they were looking for or if it was someone who knew them, like it was an inside job or something and they they had some knowledge of what they were looking for. I don't know. You said there were two different sets of footprints uh, on the AC unit. So what were they there for? Also, it's weird that if you're going to go rob some rich people that you would do it in the middle of the night when they're home. Because we covered a famous cat burglar in Dallas who would cat burgle rich neighborhoods. And they would always do it specifically when they weren't home. And they didn't want to encounter people. So it doesn't, yeah, like you're saying, it doesn't really sound like a robbery. It sounds like something else. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Well, in addition to all of that, there were pretty clear handprints made in blood on the back of the t-shirt that Karen was wearing. To investigators, this made it appear as if Karen's body had been moved sometime after her death. Huh. In fact, 
Detectives Brannon and Kratz began to wonder if the entire scene, the position of the body, the ransacked closet, the strange gunshot to the floor, was staged. So very early on, the investigation began to shift away from robbery gone wrong to the suspicion that Jack was involved in Karen's murder. Detectives wondered if it was a possibility that Jack had killed Karen and then injured himself and staged the scene in order to cover up the crime, or if he'd hired others to do the work. Oh, to like rough me up afterwards and yeah. make it look like you were make it look uh, I real. Was attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Back at the hospital, Jack was quickly rushed into surgery, and although his injuries were quite serious, he was able to recover. Jack had been beaten so severely that he'd sustained fractures in his skull, and he needed stitches in nine different areas to the back of his head to close the wounds where he'd been hit. In fact, for months after his attack, he would complain of having black spots in his vision. So it it does appear that there's a good chance he suffered some sort of brain damage from being repeatedly hit in the head. Sure. In addition, Jack's neck had been slashed open, with the cut coming extremely close to his carotid artery. Oh, man. The doctor said he was extraordinarily lucky to be alive. Well, if he did pay people to do this, they went above and beyond. Yeah. (laughs) Jack also had various bruises and scrapes along his arms, face, hands, and upper back. The arms probably defensive wounds? Yes, that's what they appeared to be for the most part. Jack arrived at the hospital just before 4 a.m., And by 3 p.m., he was stable enough to speak to Detective Brannon and Sergeant Kratz. He said that the night before, he and Karen had gone out to dinner, had eaten at around 9 o'clock, and had left about 10 p.m. They'd driven back home, and Karen had gone on to bed. He said that he had stayed up a bit longer and set the house's security alarm before also retiring to bed. Oh, so they had a security alarm. They did. He said that at some time during the night, he and Karen had woken to a crashing noise and the sound of the security alarm going off. They heard voices coming from downstairs shouting, we've got guns and this is a robbery. Jack said that he jumped out of bed and rushed to the gun cabinet in the closet to grab his shotgun. But before he was able to load it, the bedroom door flew open. He said men came inside carrying flashlights. A voice ordered Jack to put the shotgun down, and he did. He said that Karen was still frozen on the bed, and he tried to reassure her that it would be okay. The voice told them to lay face down on the floor, and he and Karen complied. Without warning, Jack said he suddenly began being struck in the back of the head. He said he didn't know how many times he was hit, but it felt like it went on forever. He said he was dimly aware of someone saying, Cut him here and then everything went black. He didn't know how long he was unconscious, but eventually he awoke and saw that the attackers were gone. He said he went to Karen, who was still face down on the floor. He rolled her body over and realized that she was either dead or dying, and he said that he became filled with a cold sense of rage. He later described how he didn't even realize his own throat was cut until he reached up to wipe what he thought was sweat away, and his thumb got stuck in the wound. He went to the telephone to call 911, 
But he said that there was so much blood in his eyes and he was so disoriented that he couldn't find the right buttons to press. So he rushed downstairs and out the front door as fast as he could to go to the neighbor's house for help. Now, there were several things in this story that further drew detectives' suspicions. Can I guess one? Sure. The fact that he was the one that moved her body and rolled her over and there was those handprints? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was definitely a part of it. Okay. As soon as you said that, I was like, suspicious. Yeah, so he does admit to handling Karen's body mm-hmm. at some point during or, you know, during or after the attack. But there were a lot of inconsistencies and discrepancies that the detectives found in Jack's story. For example, he couldn't tell for sure how many attackers there were. At one point, Jack said that it had been dark in the bedroom, but later he said that the room was well lit. They also thought that Jack's story of being unable to call 911 from his telephone located just feet away from him was very strange. It seems like a lot of wasted time for a man who believed his wife was either dying or dead to go all the way next door to report it. You know, it's yeah. like almost like another part of the staging, maybe. Can I offer a little reasoning if in the other direction? Yeah. If he had taken that many blows to the head and had brain damage, then, you know, I, when I was a person who's been concussed before. You do weird things that don't make any sense when you have concussions. Yeah. So... I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Another, definitely another important piece of the puzzle. But the main point of contention was that Jack said that he and Karen had woken up to the sound of the house's security alarm going off. Yeah. You see, there had been no alarm sounding when the first responders arrived at the Coslo home. So the detectives contacted the security company and they reported they had received no indication that the alarm had been triggered that morning. Now, unfortunately, this was 1992, and that was pretty much all the information the security company could offer. (laughs) Back then, there wasn't the technology to to store tons of data, such as timestamps of when entry doors Mm -hmm. opened and closed and when alarm systems were engaged or disengaged. None of that information was stored. They could only tell you whether or not the alarm was triggered. So that meant that either Jack was mistaken or lying about setting the alarm and hearing it go off, or someone had used the security code to disengage the system before the alarm actually went off. So you're saying an alternative might be that someone put the code in in the pre-alarm phase of it going off, so that the signal was never sent to the security company? Like, that's a, that's yes, possible? and that's okay. absolutely possible. So as y'all know, you know, the, a normal security system allows you, I think, 30 seconds or so to input the alarm code to disengage the alarm before the alarm actually goes off. So they couldn't tell you whether or not that had happened, that pre-alarm part, or that it had been engaged or disengaged. Yeah. They could just tell you it had never gone off. And I'm guessing they didn't have a ring doorbell camera. Nope, unfortunately mm. not. Even even these very, very well-off people, we didn't have that ca- yeah. kind of technology back then. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, another major issue the detectives had was with a set of strange angular injuries to the backs of Jack's hands. The detectives thought that the injuries looked a whole lot like bite marks. The question was, were these bite marks from the robbers? Or were they from Karen, given while she was fighting mm. off her attacker? Yeah, and he, you know, in his story, he didn't give any reason why he would have had those defensive wounds or the wounds to his back. So that's interesting. He only gave reason why he would have had wounds to his neck and the back of his head. Yeah. Karen's body was taken to medical examiner Dr. Nizam Pirwani of the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office, and her autopsy was completed the day after her murder. It ended up confirming the brutality of the attack and greatly increased suspicions against Jack Coslow. Karen had suffered at least 27 blunt force wounds from some kind of long, narrow object, something like a pipe or possibly a crowbar or mm -hmm. pry bar. They knew that one had been used on the house. Like Jack, she had skull fractures from blows to the back of her head but she'd also been struck in the face, breaking her jaw and loosening her teeth. The worst of the blunt force injuries was a strike to the center of her throat, which had crushed her larynx. Oh. Dr. Pirwani said that this injury would have caused Karen to suffocate to death within minutes. In addition to the blunt force injuries, Karen had suffered an 11-inch long knife wound to the throat, from ear to ear, so deep that it almost decapitated her. Either one of these injuries, the crushed larynx or the cut throat, would have been fatal. However, Dr. Pirwani concluded that the blunt force injury had come before the knife injury and that she was likely already dead or very close to it by the time her throat had been cut. He said he determined this because there was minimal hemorrhaging at the site of the slashed throat. Therefore, Dr. Pirwani listed Karen's cause of death as suffocation due to the crush injury of the larynx due to blunt force trauma of the neck. Karen also had defensive injuries to her hands and arms, along with a wound with a strange angular pattern that law enforcement and the medical examiner agreed could potentially be a bite mark. Another bite mark? Yes. So weird. that's very strange that both of the victims seem to have bite marks on, is weird. on their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And like she had a lot of frontal wounds like to the face, which seemed like personal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the injuries right away. Investigators were struck with the differences between Jack and Karen's injuries. Sure. Jack had been struck in the head nine times. His neck had been cut and his carotid almost opened. But he'd survived, and he'd been able to provide a pretty cohesive statement about what happened just a few hours later. 
Meanwhile, Karen had been struck 27 times and had suffered two separate fatal injuries. Yeah. Then there was Karen's stomach contents. Jack had told detectives that he and Karen had eaten dinner the night before at around 9 p.m. Dr. Pirwani concluded that the contents of Karen's stomach were not as digested as one would expect if she had died at around 3 to 3.30 a.m., around the time that that 911 call was made. Instead, he suggested that she had likely died a couple hours earlier than that, even as early as around midnight. To detectives, this seemed like a huge gap of time that was unaccounted for and would have provided Jack plenty of time to pose the body, stage the scene, and get rid of evidence like the guns and pry bar. Sure. So at this point, the evidence continues to stack against Jack in the eyes of the investigators. And it only got worse when they identified that the knife that had been used to cut the couple's throats had belonged to Jack. It was something that he usually kept in the bedroom closet. Hmm. Yeah, it's not looking good for Jack so far. Yeah. Now, by this time, the news that the violent attack in Rivercrest and the murder of Karen Coslow had spread fast. And this murder was the talk of Fort Worth. It was on, you know, the front page of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. It was something that everybody was discussing. Oh, absolutely. That type of crime just doesn't happen in those kind of neighborhoods. Yeah. And just like the investigators, it seemed like much of the early speculation around town was that Jack Coslow had somehow been involved. Yeah, and that's very salacious. And it's going to be the talk of every media outlet, too. Like, once the major suspect becomes one of the rich and powerful of that neighborhood. Uh, you know, in this case, I feel like the journalists were pretty neutral when they were reporting the story. Oh, really? Actually. It was really more the rumor mill going around town, it oh, sounds okay. like. Yeah. Now, the day after the murder, Jack's daughter, Christy Coslow, who is now 17, dropped by the Coslow home and spoke to the reporters who'd gathered there hoping for a break in the story. She said that she had visited her father in the hospital just hours after the attack and that he was doing well, all things considered. Quote, it was scary, almost losing my dad, but he looked good and I was happy to be able to see him and that he was alive. When asked if it was possible that her father was involved, Christy denied it completely. She said her father cared deeply for Karen, and in fact, she said she didn't know anyone who would want to hurt Karen. She described her own relationship with Karen as, quote, as close as a stepdaughter and stepmother could be. A few days later, Christy, along with her mother Paula, came in for questioning as part of the normal procedure of interviewing all the couple's close family and friends. Unfortunately, none of these interviews seemed to bear any fruit. Four days after the murder, on Monday, March 16th, Karen's funeral and burial were held. Jack was temporarily released from the hospital to attend. Footage of him showed him very stoic, but he was clearly still in pain. The back of his head had been shaved and the multiple stitched wounds were exposed, and he still had a heavy bandage taped to his throat. Thankfully, though, he did have his friends there to help support him through a very difficult situation like this. Sure. Once the burial was over, Jack went right back to the hospital, where he remained for a couple more days. But by then, he was acutely aware of the fact that people suspected that he was Karen's killer. 
In fact, the day of her burial, police spoke to him again. According to Jack, they told him that they believed that the injuries on his hands were bite marks and that they had already concluded that the marks were consistent with Karen's teeth. The same day, they asked that Jack consent to providing a dental impression of his teeth so they could compare it to the pattern found on Karen's body. Yeah, to see if they were both fighting and biting each other in a struggle. Yeah. Jack was finally released from the hospital after six days. He continued talking to detectives and fully cooperated with the investigation. He even led the detectives on a videotaped tour of the house, where he spent hours going over the details of the attack. And through all of this, Jack never hired a lawyer to represent him or just to keep the investigators off his back. All of this might have pointed to Jack's innocence, but he still seemed to be the investigation's main, if not only, suspect. Hmm. Now, a check of the Coslow's financial records confirmed that the majority of the couple's wealth was Karen's money, from her family's trust as well as tied up in real estate property and other investments. Meanwhile, Jack was no longer the successful banking executive he once had been. Oh, really? In 1990, two years before, the board of the bank he worked for decided to restructure the company and ended up laying off several of their top executives, including Jack. He had, of course, received a sizable severance package, but he hadn't actually been employed since then. Instead, he'd been working on starting his own company from the ground up, and he'd invested a considerable chunk of his own money into starting this new business venture. What kind of business venture was it? It was a construction supply company. Oh, okay. So completely different direction from banking. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So detectives wondered if Jack had killed Karen for this money to get to her money mm. to afford his new business venture since he had been laid off. Yeah, maybe his severance nest egg was running out and he needed a new investor in the form of his newly departed wife's uh, inheritance. Yeah, I mean, that was the consideration. And from one of Karen's friends, they learned that Karen had been seeing a therapist for the past four to five years. Detectives thought that those records might be the perfect opportunity to uncover chinks in their marriage and therefore possibly motive. Mm. So they requested that the therapist turn over his records. However, the therapist refused. You see, those had been family therapy sessions that had included Jack and years before even Christy. Uh. And so to release the records, he'd have to break doctor-patient confidentiality of two living patients, which he wasn't willing to do. Mm -hmm. So investigators opted to take the matter to a grand jury, who then issued a subpoena for the records. Oh, wow, you can do that. Yep. And now the therapist still refused to release the records. But this was something that was being battled over for several days. And all of this shows how far investigators were willing to go to pursue this case. And it seems to show how serious the investigators were that they believed that Jack had something to do with Karen's death. The investigation continued like this, seemingly squared directly at Jack, with few, if any, other suspects of note, for 12 days after Karen's murder. So that was the six days he was in the hospital and the next six days he was out of the hospital. Then, on Tuesday, March 24th, Detective Brannon received a phone call that would completely alter the course of the investigation. The caller's name was Paul, 
and he said that he had information about the murder of Karen Coslow. He agreed to meet the detectives right away. Paul told them that a friend of his named Jeffrey Dillingham had asked to meet up with him on March 12th, the day of the attack on the Coslows. He said that Jeffrey told him that he and another friend named Brian Salter had been involved and asked that he get rid of some of the evidence. Paul said that he had reluctantly agreed, and Jeffrey handed over a bunch of items, including a bulletproof vest, a leather backpack, a paper bag of bullets, a pair of jeans covered in blood, and a wallet. Paul said he looked inside the wallet and saw Jack Coslow's driver's license and credit cards with his name on them. So at this point, he knows that his friend is telling the truth. Jeffrey also handed over an 18-inch pry bar that still had blood on it. Paul said that Jeffrey explained that he'd used the pry bar in the attack and that he had been surprised to learn that Jack Coslow was still alive as he'd felt like he'd beaten the couple for around 10 minutes. Jeffrey told him that he'd tried to clean the pry bar afterward but had been unable to get all the blood off of it. Later, Paul told detectives that Jeffrey and this other friend, Brian, had approached him about six weeks earlier about killing the Coslows, but he had, of course, refused. At the time, he hadn't taken it seriously, and didn't until Jeffrey dumped this confession and all of this murder evidence on him. Wow, so it definitely seems like these other two individuals are definitely involved and had some role to play in the attacks. It makes me shift back to the idea that these men were hired to do this, or it was, in fact, a robbery that just went wrong. But yeah, it leaves me with my head spinning as to, is Jack involved or is he not at this point? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Who knows what's going on? Now, Paul continued that he and Jeffrey had been good friends since high school, and he didn't know what to do. So instead of destroying the evidence like Jeffrey had asked him to, he just sat on it. He said that every day, part of him expected the police to just bust down his door and arrest him. And he was filled with anxiety over what to do. Okay, so he he has a conscience about it, and that's why he called in? Yeah, yeah, exactly. After 12 days, he couldn't deal with it any longer, and he decided to reach out to police and tell them everything that he knew. Paul agreed to hand over all of the evidence that Jeffrey had given him. The blood on the pry bar was tested and later shown to have trace amounts of Karen Coslow's DNA on it. Now, the name Jeffrey Dillingham had not come up in the investigation at all up to this point. Jeffrey was 19 years old, and in fact, the murder had happened just six days after his 19th birthday. He'd grown up in the nearby town of White Settlement, although he and his family had recently moved to Alito. He'd been in the National Honor Society at Brewer High School, where he had met Paul. He had graduated high school the year before, was working full-time as an assistant manager of a blockbuster in Arlington, and was planning on starting college soon. He'd had a steady girlfriend for several years, and they were supposed to be getting married that summer. Jeffrey... Yeah, I mean... It does not seem to fit the uh, the profile of someone who would do this. Exactly. I mean, he was a good kid from a good Christian family. His girlfriend's family absolutely adored him. He'd never been in trouble with the law. So, I mean, and again, there was no connection between him and the Coslos. Yeah. So this whole thing was so bizarre. However, 
the name Brian Salter did ring a bell to detectives. Detectives knew that this was Christy Coslow's boyfriend. In fact, when Christy came in for questioning just days after the murder, Brian had been with her and had also been interviewed. Whoa. Okay. So maybe the daughter has something to do with this? Maybe. Weird. Okay. Boy, there's some twists and turns in this case. Yeah. Around midnight that night, Jeffrey Dillingham was arrested as he left his job at Blockbuster. He was taken in for questioning, where he fully and very politely confessed to the entire crime. In fact, he provided a 37-minute-long audio-taped statement describing planning and carrying out the attack. Jeffrey said that it all started several months before when his good friend Brian had started dating Christy Coslow. So, to keep this simple, Jeffrey, Brian, and Paul had all gone to school together, but at some point Brian had been transferred to another school, which is where he had met Christy. So Paul and Jeffrey didn't know Christy at all, other than her being Brian's girlfriend. Okay. Jeffrey said that one day, Brian told him that Christy didn't get along with her parents, and that if they were both dead, she stood to inherit a large sum of money. She guessed somewhere around $12 million. He said that Christy was offering to give them each $1 million of the inheritance if they killed her parents. Jeez, that's... That's it's crazy. A lot. Yeah, and it's also a lot of money. And in 1992, this was about $2 million. Yeah. Inflation ups it by about two times the amount. Right, yeah. So it's it's quite a lot of money that she's offering them for this. So this is patricide and matricide for profit. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what it's looking like so far. When Detective Brandon asked Jeffrey what he planned to do with the money, Jeffrey said that he and Brian were going to go into business together. So basically, they thought they were going to be set up for life with this money. Jeffrey said Brian told him that Christie's idea for Jeffrey said Brian told him that Christie's idea was for them to break in in the middle of the night and kill the couple while they were sleeping. To that end, Christie had furnished them with information. First, she drew out a three-page floor plan of the Coslow's home, pointing out places in the house where she knew that they could find money, where the alarm system was, and where her parents' bedroom was. Second, she also provided the alarm code to the security system. Okay. So that's why the alarm didn't actually go all the way off. It yes. was just alerting that it was going to go off, and they put the code in. That's right. And this is also why they have two different sets of footprints, two yes. different calibers of gun holes. Yeah, okay. things are starting to mm -hmm. make sense. He said Christy also told them that her parents kept around $4,000 in cash for emergencies in a drawer in their bedroom closet, and that she told them to be sure to grab the money during the murder. Okay. This was all, you could almost consider this like a down payment for the murders. Yeah, but that's why the whole walk-in closet was just shredded because they were looking for that $4,000. Yeah. Okay. Jeffrey said that they spent a good amount of time planning the attack telling Detective Brannon in his statement, quote, it was planned out to the best of my ability because I did not want to get caught. He said they spent time assembling all the tools and supplies they needed, including the pry bar, a bulletproof vest, latex gloves, and even a glass cutter in case they couldn't pry open the back door. 
for weapons, Brian had taken two of his father's guns, a 38 caliber revolver and a 32 caliber automatic pistol. However, Jeffrey stated that they only brought the guns for self-defense in case things went down the wrong way, mostly because they knew from Christy that Jack had all of those shotguns. Yeah. Well, that was really dumb of them to enter the house and like announce, we have guns. We're here to rob you. That seems really stupid, especially if you know that he has shotguns. And Well, I think they were just hoping that the shock of it would keep them in place, keep them terrified, sort of huddled in bed. Yeah. Which, I mean, ended up kind of working in a way. Right. So they hadn't actually wanted to use the guns and risk a neighbor or somebody hearing the noise and calling police. Their plan was to hit Karen and Jack over the head, knock them unconscious, and then cut their throats. Brian gave Jeffrey a fishing knife to use for this purpose. Jeffrey said that on the morning of the murder, Brian picked him up and they drove to Christie's house, where Brian parked the car. They then walked to the Coslow home on foot. Again, that was a short distance of about a mile. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey said that he and Brian stood awkwardly in the alley outside the back gate of the home for about half an hour, psyching themselves up for the attack. Finally, at around 3 a.m., they climbed onto the AV units and over the fence. Jeffrey said that he struggled with the door for another 15 minutes, but finally got it open. That's when the pre-alarm started going off, and Brian went to the unit to enter the code. Meanwhile, Jeffrey said that he dashed straight up the stairs to the primary bedroom and kicked down the bedroom door. He saw Jack with the shotgun and he ordered him to put it down. By that time, Brian had joined him in the bedroom and they ordered the couple to the floor. Jeffrey said he started hitting them in the head with the pry bar. He said he began hitting Jack first, but when Karen started screaming, he turned and started hitting her too. And then he kind of went back and forth like this between Mm. them. He said that at one point, Karen turned her head and he ended up hitting her in the throat. After that, he said that Karen stopped resisting. Quote, she kind of laid down and let it pass. He didn't know it at the time, but he was actually describing what the M.E. concluded was the death blow in his statement. Meanwhile, he said Brian had gone into the closet to start looking for the money, but he couldn't find it. He said he did find something else, though, Jack's hunting knife. Jeffrey said he saw Brian go to Karen and draw the knife across her throat. He went to Jack next, but Jeffrey said his back was turned and he didn't see him actually cut him. But at some point around this time, Jeffrey said the gun that Brian was carrying accidentally went off. Oh. It was just a total accident. That's why the hole in the floor. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey said that it scared them so much that they decided to hurry up and get out of there. Essentially, detectives believe that this errant gunshot might have been the thing to save Jack's life. They were so freaked out by it that they started rushing, and they didn't stop to make sure that Jack was actually dead. Jeez. Yeah, that's crazy. Before leaving, though, they first went back to the closet to look for the money, leaving behind the bloody mess. But once again, they couldn't find a secret stash anywhere. So that $4,000 that Christy said was in the closet, couldn't find it. Frustrated, they grabbed two things right there on the bedside table. Jack's wallet, along with one of his expensive gold watches. Oh, okay. 
So there were actually two things missing from the crime scene, the wallet and the watch. Hmm. Jeffrey said they rushed out of the house, pried open the back gate to get out of the yard, and then ran back to their car and drove away. Jeffrey said that there had only been $120 in Jack's wallet, and they were sure to take it before he gave the wallet over to Paul along with the other supplies. They had sold the watch for money. What a paltry haul for your robbery. Yeah, and they expected to walk away from the murders with cash in hand, and they really didn't get that. Now with this physical evidence, along with Jeffrey Dillingham's full confession, it was then time to arrest Christy Coslow and Brian Salter. Detectives sat on Paula's house, Christy's mother, and at 7.30 a.m., Christy, Brian, and Paula were seen getting into a vehicle and backing out of their driveway. At an intersection nearby, police swarmed the car, ordered everyone out, and arrested Christy and Brian. This happened only about seven hours after Jeffrey was arrested and less than 24 hours after Paul had come forward. So things were really moving fast, yeah. Well, and again, thank goodness Paul came forward because otherwise they wouldn't have known about any of this. Yeah. Well, during Christie's first interview with Detective Brannon after her arrest, she fully denied offering money to anyone to kill her parents. She said that she sometimes joked around about inheriting money once her parents died, but that was it. However, she did admit that at one point she had toyed with the idea of robbing her parents' house, and she admitted to giving Brian the diagram of the house and the alarm code for this purpose only. When asked why she'd planned to rob her parents, she said it was because her father was mean to her and that this would be a way to get his attention. She denied having any knowledge of or involvement in any plot to kill her father and stepmother. Detectives then turned to Brian Salter. Now, Brian had a lot in common with Jeffrey. He had also come from a lower middle class background, had also been an honor student in high school. And like Jeffrey, detectives found that he was very quick to divulge the full story. And he gave a very thorough confession of the plotting and commission of the attack. What's up with these honor students just being so forthright, but also willing to commit murder? Not sure. It is very weird, isn't it? It is. I I had the same reaction, yeah. However, unlike Jeffrey and Christy, Brian had been in trouble before. In fact, in February of 1991, so just over a year before Karen's murder, he'd been arrested for burglarizing a vehicle belonging to a Fort Worth city councilman. Uh, On purpose? I'm not sure if it was an intentional burglary of this particular councilman's stuff, but he stole like a bunch of equipment and briefcases and a voice recorder and all of these things and and tried to pawn it all, essentially. For honor students, they're not particularly intelligent about crime. Brian said that he and Christy had been dating for about five months, and he said that he learned about her hatred of her parents and that she wanted them dead only weeks into the relationship. He said that Christy constantly complained about her parents. She said her father ignored her and didn't love her. She said that Karen had taken her mother's place and had tried to turn her into a snob and had taken her father away from her. He said that at first the idea had been just robbing the house. But during Christmas of 1991, he said that he and Christy had gotten engaged. And around the same time, the plan crystallized into a double murder. 
Brian said Christy told him she believed she would inherit about $12 million if her parents were dead, and she would give him and whoever helped him a million dollars each. So again, this is... corroborates the other version of the story. Yes. But also, what a way to celebrate your engagement. Uh, Yeah. Hey, all right, congratulations, we're going to get married. Great. We're so happy. Also, let's murder my parents. Well, here's another weird thing. At some point during this planning process, Brian also considered killing him, his parents as well. His own parents? Yes. Eventually, that part of the plan was abandoned, but it was something that they had taken into consideration. Jeez. Okay. Now, Brian said that Christy was very specific that both her stepmother and her father would need to die for the plan to work. She reasoned that if only one was killed, then the other parent would inherit the money, and she'd still be in the same position. When Detective Brandon asked him if Christy told him how she wanted them to die, Brian said that she'd stayed out of the specifics, but that she told him to do it quietly and to try to make it as painless as possible. This doesn't seem painless at all. Well, exactly. And that really shows, I think, the naivety of these young people planning a murder like this. They actually chose this plan because in their minds, this was going to be a painless, simple death for these two people. And of course, murder is not simple or painless. And this this one certainly was not either one of no, those things. No, this one was brutal and it yeah. went on for a while. Yeah. Brian said he was the one to reach out to Jeffrey to get him involved, as well as contacting other people for supplies and for help. He said that Jeffrey came up with all sorts of wild ideas about killing the couple, including blowing up their car, poisoning them, or setting the crime scene up to look like a murder-suicide. Brian also said that he and Christy had started a plan on how they were going to spend their newly acquired money. They went out house hunting in some of the wealthy neighborhoods around Fort Worth, and they'd gone to car dealerships to pick out their new cars. She wanted a red BMW convertible, and he planned on getting a Toyota Land Cruiser. Wow, yeah, you were right about the naivety part of it. Yeah. Brian said that they'd set a date to kill the Coslos on four to five different occasions before the actual attack but that he'd kept coming up with excuses to cancel because he was nervous. He said that Christy had become increasingly frustrated and wanted the job done. And he also was clear that Christy was along for the ride every step of the way. In fact, the day before the murder, he told her that it was the plan for that night, and she had told him, that's good. He had updated her again around midnight before they were leaving to go commit the murders, and she had told him, okay, be careful. And then when he got home after the attack at about 4 a.m., Brian said that he called Christy to tell her what had happened. He said the first thing she asked was if her parents were dead. He told her he didn't know. And she responded, I hope they are. Now, of course, shortly thereafter, they learned that Jack had survived the assault. Brian said that when Christy found out, she asked him, quote, what went wrong? A few hours later, he'd gone with Christy to visit Jack in the hospital. Wow. Yeah. So he actually was at the bedside of the person he tried to murder. Yes. And afterward, he'd worried that Jack was going to recognize him from the attack. But he said Christy assured him not to worry, that nothing bad was going to happen. He wasn't going to get caught. And after she made her little press conference to the reporters the day after the murder... 
He said he told her that she should be an actress, and that was something that made her laugh. This is wild. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, Brian's story about what happened during the murder matched Jeffrey's very closely, except for one major detail. Brian said that it was Jeffrey who had cut their throats, not him. So essentially, he blamed all of the violence and the murder itself entirely on Jeffrey. Okay. But he's just trying to push heat off onto Jeffrey since Jeffrey had already said he'd hit them with a crowbar. Yeah, yeah. potentially. You know, they're, yeah. they're definitely kind of trying to blame each other. At least I would say Brian at this point was for mm-hmm. sure. With both Jeffrey Dillingham and Brian Salter claiming that not only did Christy Coslow know about the plan, but it was her idea, Detective Brannon said that he went back to Christy again. He said he told her the truth, that her friends were not protecting her, and she needed to come forward with what she knew. Brannon said that's when Christy decided to provide a second statement. This time, Christy admitted four separate times that not only had she asked Jeffrey and Brian to kill her parents, but that she'd also offered them money to do so, although she said she never gave specific figures. Hmm. She didn't admit that it was her idea, but she said that it was an idea that her and Brian had, quote, pushed on each other. She kind of went back and forth on the reason why. She said that, of course, she wanted the money. But then later, she said that she did it because she resented Karen and that her father had made her and her mother's lives miserable for the past 10 years or so, essentially since the divorce. In fact, she said that she didn't care about the money at all and had planned on giving away her whole inheritance to Brian and her mother once she got it. Mm, We know that's not true. Yeah, this does sound like something where she's trying to assuage her guilt a little by Mm -hmm. saying, I did this because I was angry at them, not simply because I just wanted all their money. Yeah, she's confessing, but she's padding the confession with like yeah. other details. And of course, so. yeah, and of course, making sure to to point out how bad Karen and Jack were to her mm-hmm. and why they kind of deserved this to happen. Mm-hmm. With all three statements entered into the record, Jeffrey Dillingham and Brian Salter were officially charged and indicted for the capital murder of Karen Coslow and the attempted capital murder of Jack Coslow. Christy Coslow was charged and indicted with conspiracy to commit capital murder. The charges were capital based on the fact that the murder was committed over a promise of payment, and that can be applied to both parties, so the killer and the employer. The capital charge applied to Christy as well, meaning that even though she was only 17 at the time of the murder, 
she could potentially also receive the death sentence. That's because this was 1992, and the Supreme Court decision that forbid the execution of offenders under the age of 18 didn't happen until 2005. Oh, okay. And yes, Texas was sending juveniles to death row all through the 90s and into the 2000s. So this was not particularly unusual for the time. Although it was unusual because this was a young girl instead of a young boy. Yeah, that's true. Most of the juveniles that were sent to death row were uh, male. Yeah. I mean, that's the trend across the board. Mm -hmm. Yes. Karen Koslow's murder was already the talk of the town, but things really exploded once the arrests were made and it was learned that Karen's own stepdaughter had been involved in the brutal attack. So now this is a national news story. Oh, sure. Now, obviously, there was no one more stunned than Jack himself. He was able to tell investigators the details about his very tumultuous relationship with his daughter. Oh, good. Okay, interesting. I'm excited to see Jack's perspective on this whole situation. Yeah. Well, he said that things really started going downhill when Christy turned 13. He said that she started acting out a lot, skipping school, running away from home, as well as hanging out with a bad crowd. He said that he and Karen had tried everything to get through to her, which is why they had started seeing the family therapist together. He said that they'd transferred her to different schools, including expensive private schools, to try to find a good fit for her so she would start doing well. They even sent her to a three-month psychiatric program for emotionally disturbed teens. But Jack said that none of the measures seemed to help, and her bad behavior continued to escalate, even to the point where Christy actually struck Karen. All of this caused them to become estranged for two years starting from when Christy was about 15 up until recently. So they weren't really seeing each other much at all during that period. No, absolutely not. For two years, they did not speak. But then, over the past two to three months, Jack said Christy had suddenly popped back up in their lives. The month before the murder, she had personally hand-delivered him a card for Valentine's Day, and they had all gone out to eat for her 17th birthday. And just two weeks before the murder, she'd come over for another unexpected visit. Jack said that she had kissed him on his cheek and then introduced him to her new boyfriend, Brian. He said that even at the time, he thought all of this was odd because Christy usually wasn't this friendly towards him. Now, given what we now know about the attack and the fact that it had been plotted for months... It seems like this was Christy's way to perhaps suck up to her parents or to try to get close to them while also actively plotting their murders. Yeah, it would be if they were in the house, right? And they met the family. So it's also a good time to like yeah, take I a don't, look around. Well, kind of. I don't, I'm not sure Brian necessarily went inside of the house. I think they oh, were outside. Okay. But still, Brian himself confirmed that one of the reasons why he came with Christy that day was so he knew where they lived and he could better identify his targets. Wow, that's cold, man. But the arrests weren't just shocking to Jack. They were pretty shocking to investigators, too. After all, they had been pretty dead set that Jack was their killer. So those marks on the backs of Jack's hands and the injuries Karen sustained that were suggested to look like bite marks, well, upon closer inspection, it was found that those injuries were made by the pry bar. Um, you know how... Like the teeth of the pry bar? Yes. It has that little notch in it. 
So it's my best guess. I, I, I can't necessarily find this information amongst like the trial records because it was never presented because it wasn't real. <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, yeah, it's my best assessment that that was the disconnect, that those marks looked like teeth and they jumped to a whole lot of conclusions about those marks based on nothing. Yeah, no kidding. Because at one point they thought that they w- they almost matched some dentition of uh, Karen's, yes. right? And that's why they took that's the That's what Jack was his. told. Wow. Yes. And it's also clear that the assessment of Karen's time of death at midnight based on her stomach contents was simply incorrect. Both killers confirmed that they broke into the house at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And we know that the 911 call Jack's neighbors made happened at 3.39 a.m. So she died somewhere in this span of time. And all of Jack's inconsistencies or uncertainties in his story simply came down to the fact that he'd suffered through an extremely traumatic event as well as a tremendous head injury. Mm-hmm. He had been recounting the story as best he could under those conditions. Yeah. Concussions are a hell of a thing, man. Yeah. It's hard that they, they cause memory issues and short-term and long-term memory issues. So. Absolutely. They're very serious. Yeah. And I'm not sure how serious they would have been taken in, in 1992, you know, a, a sort of yeah. head injury or ba- brain injury back then. And that might have added to their suspicion against Jack because they mm-hmm. didn't understand maybe why he was so disoriented or confused. Yeah, probably. I mean, I know in my own experience, I was having them in the 90s and there wasn't a whole lot of weight given to them when I was receiving concussions. So we know a lot more about them today than we did back then, most definitely. Yeah. In the light of the news of Christy Koslow's arrest, at least two more of her other classmates from a private school called West Academy came forward. They were 17-year-old John and 15-year-old Josh. Each of them also said that Christy had asked them to kill her parents and that she'd offered them money from her inheritance. Wow, so she was just shopping this around. That's what it seemed like. John actually sat down for an interview with the news station KXAS. In this interview, John said that Christy brought the idea to him around eight months before the murder. Remember, Christy had only been dating Brian for five months, so this suggested that her planning had started before the relationship and independently from him. Mm. John said that Christy told him that he could break into the house at night while they were sleeping, that she had the security code to the alarm system, and she could show him the layout of the house. All of these things sound eerily familiar, right? Yeah, definitely uh, match up and corroborate with the other stories that we've heard. Yeah. He said that he stopped talking to Christy after this, but about two weeks before the murder, Brian and Christy called him. Now, he'd actually known Brian, too. They'd been roommates at one point. So he, he was familiar with both Christy and Brian. So they were looking for the extra muscle. They were looking for their Jeffrey at this point. I think they were looking for a third person. Oh, a yeah, third. at this point. Okay, like a Paul. They were looking for somebody to fill Paul's role, yeah. which he turned down. Yes, Paul had also turned it down. John said that they implored him to help with the murder and asked if he knew anyone with a gun. Christy once again mentioned that she could pay him well. Of course, John had refused, but he said he didn't take them seriously until he learned about the attack, just like Paul. John told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that the day after Karen's murder, 
He'd submitted an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers reporting all of these conversations that really? he'd had with them. Yes, and for whatever reason, either the message didn't reach the right hands or it wasn't taken seriously or what, it was never followed up on. That's wild. Yes. That seems like something that you would want to get captured in the flagging process of this anonymous tip line service. Yeah, and, and that's my biggest question out of all of this is, did human eyeballs see that? And was it just ignored? Was it not taken seriously? I have no idea because this t- this part of is never really brought up again, the fact that this tip happened. Yeah. But That's it's very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Jeffrey Dillingham was the first of the three teenagers to go on trial. Due to the huge publicity of the case, especially in Tarrant County, the trial was moved to Wichita County. It began in June of 1993, a little over a year after the attack. The very first day of the trial, the jury heard the entire 37-minute taped statement Jeffrey gave to police after his arrest. So as you can imagine, this set a pretty abysmal tone for the defense. Sure. The tape was also very chilling because there's no emotion or remorse in his voice. He's very neutral on the tape when he's describing these things, and yet also strangely polite. Like, the whole way while he's describing trying to kill these people, he's calling them Mr. and Mrs. Coslow. Wow. It's it's very strange. So he never gets emotional or teary-eyed no, or anything? No, no, mm. not at all. Meanwhile, his behavior in court strongly contrasted with him on the recording. In court, every day, he sniffled and sometimes openly wept through the entire thing. So it kind of made people and jurors feel like he was crying because he had been caught, not because he actually felt remorse. Yeah, he knew it was over at this point. He was going to, he was headed for a really stiff sentence. Yeah. To add to that, the prosecution had all of that physical evidence to trot out as well. The bloody clothes, Jack's wallet, the bloody pry bar with DNA consistent with Karen on it. Paul testified as well, describing how Jeffrey had asked him to destroy the evidence. Jack also testified, and he described his relationship with his daughter as well as the events of the morning of the attack. Quote, I remember the whole world turning black. I remember him beating me and beating me and beating me until I didn't remember anymore. The defense's main tactic was to try to cast doubt on the medical examiner's findings that Karen had died of a crushed larynx, an injury that Jeffrey is heard clearly describing in his taped confession. Yeah, that seems like a slam dunk. Yeah, so this was definitely a part uh, that they were trying to push back on a little. Mm -hmm. So they brought in their own experts to testify that Karen had actually died of blood loss from the cut to her throat an injury that Jeffrey had claimed Brian had inflicted. Okay, so the defense is doing their job trying to push murder blame onto another party that was there at the scene. Yes. Okay. Now, legally, which of the two struck the killing blow didn't matter, but the defense hoped that if the jury could believe that it wasn't Jeffrey, then they would go easier on him. Mm -hmm. But after just one hour and 40 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Jeffrey Dillingham guilty of capital murder. In the sentencing phase, many people took the stand for the defense. Family members, friends, teachers, fellow churchgoers, even one of his jailers, all as character witnesses. And again, these were all people telling these stories about what a good kid Jeffrey was. 
So what happened? <laughs> Clearly he's not. Well, the prosecution put on an impressive witness of their own. FBI criminologist Robert Ressler. Now, I know we've talked about him on the show before, but this is the OG from the early days of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. Robert Ressler helped develop the field of psychological profiling of violent offenders. He worked on cases such as John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Richard Chase. And in fact, he's credited with coming up with the term serial killer. Mm -hmm. So this is a very serious get for the prosecution to get him to come in to testify. He's the guy. Yes. Ressler testified that contract killers, i.e. people who kill for money, are amongst the most dangerous criminals to exist. He said that the extensive planning over a period of several months would give a reasonable man time to stop and think about the consequences of his actions and stand down. Therefore, he said it was his expert opinion that Jeffrey Dillingham was indeed a future threat to society. This was really important because that's one of the questions jurors ask when assessing the death penalty versus life in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, future risk to society is important. And also uh, that cold and calculated way he gave his statement and when they were talking about the planning process, he was the one that was coming up with all these different ideas on how they were going to do it, whether it be poisoning or some other way. It's, it's very interesting. He seemed very up for this. Well, the jury, I guess, agreed with you on that, because after three and a half hours of deliberation, they returned and sentenced Jeffrey to death. Now, the fact that Jeffrey was convicted and sentenced to death is probably not shocking, given the sheer amount of evidence against him and the brutality of the crime. But it might surprise you to learn that before the trial began, prosecutors had actually offered Jeffrey a plea deal that would have allowed him to avoid the death penalty. Yes, that does surprise me. Yeah. If he agreed to testify against the others and plead guilty to the charges, he would have received a term of life in prison. For reasons that are completely unclear, Jeffrey had rejected that offer. That's strange in light of the fact that he had to have been aware of how strong the case was against him. That is extremely strange. And his lawyers must have known that too. So I'm imagining like it's something he had to talk as. His, tell his lawyers, like, no, I'm doing this. I'm I'm not going to take the plea deal. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not clear. Either he thought for some reason he was going to be found not guilty, or if found guilty, he'd only be sentenced to life, or maybe he just didn't want to testify against the others. Again, it's it's not clear what his thinking was. That is weird. But it obviously was probably not the right decision. Yeah, yeah, strategically or for his life and his further trying to survive an existence on this planet. Yeah, it was the wrong move for sure. Now, Brian Salter was up next, and the prosecution offered him the same deal they offered Jeffrey. Testify against Christy Coslow at her trial and plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. Perhaps because he'd seen what might happen if he didn't, Brian had no qualms about accepting this arrangement. And because Christy was seen as the mastermind behind the plot, she was not offered such a deal. Mm. Therefore, the trial moved forward against Christy Coslow. So finally, it was time for Christy Coslow to head to trial in June of 1994, just two years after Karen's murder. 
Much of her trial paralleled Jeffrey's trial. Both of her tape-recorded statements were played for the jury, including the second one in which she admitted four times to offering Brian and Jeffrey money to kill her parents. Jack also took the stand against his daughter to testify to their relationship and to the attack itself. At one point, with the jury out of the room, Jack was asked if he believed his daughter deserved the death penalty. He responded, quote, Yes, that's what she gave Karen. Ooh, he ain't wrong, though. That's, that is harsh, and that is cold. Yeah, it's really harsh. But he ain't wrong, though. Well, I mean, obviously he has his, his right to yeah, feel that way. Sure. But, um, yeah, r- really harsh to hear something like that. Brian also took the stand against his former girlfriend, testifying that the murder plot was her idea, that she helped to plan it, and that she was informed of it every step of the way. This time, though, on the stand, Brian admitted to finding Jack's knife in the closet. He said that he offered it to Jeffrey to use on the Coslows, but Jeffrey had said no. So Brian admitted that he was the one to use it to cut Karen and Jack's throats. Mm. And then he just tossed it underneath the bed where it was later found? Yeah, I mean, I think it just got dropped in the struggle, especially after oh, the gun yeah. went off. They were trying to get out of there. Yeah, Because that's one of the things I would think you would take with you. But yeah, you're right. If it was that much chaos going on, it just got left. Yeah. yeah. Christie's main defense was that her complaints about her parents were simply idle threats and that Brian and Jeffrey had acted alone. Her defense team argued that the first statement she gave after her arrest was the truth and that she hadn't known about the plan to kill her parents at all. They painted the investigation into the attack as botched right from the beginning due to bad police work. They pointed out that investigators had missed crucial details, such as the stolen wallet and watched, and had woefully misinterpreted evidence. The defense pointed out that on March 13th, Just the day after the murder, Detective Brannon had written in his case notes that he found Jack to be a, quote, guilty but deceitful person. In fact, the defense argued that the entire investigation had such bad tunnel vision when it came to Jack that detectives were in the process of filing for an arrest warrant on him when Paul's tip came in that led to the break in the case. Well, that is an interesting defense strategy. And if that is true, I mean, definitely parts of it are true of what the defense is saying. Mm -hmm. So the defense said that the detectives felt humiliated because they had been under a lot of pressure to solve this big case. And the whole time, the actual murderers had been right under their nose. I mean, Brian and Christy had even been interviewed by them. The defense called Brannon, quote, embarrassed and vindictive and said that when Christy provided her first statement the truthful one, according to the defense, he just wouldn't accept it. They said that he, quote, berated, bullied, and badgered Christie for over an hour without letting her speak to her attorney. In the end, the defense argued, Christie had ended up giving the second statement, but only because she was scared of the detective. Now, Detective Brannon, on the other hand, admitted to being suspicious of Jack, but he totally denied that they were close to arresting him or that they had any sort of tunnel vision. He was like, this was just the normal part of the investigation, and Mm. that's not how it was. So that might not have been completely the full scope of the investigation. I feel like maybe 
it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know, obviously they're arguing for both sides. Uh-huh. So probably the truth is somewhere along the middle. Mm-hmm. He also said that Christy never requested her attorney during their interview and that she had opted to provide that second statement willingly. Now, as far as Christy being the mastermind of a plot to commit double murder, her attorney said that she did not, quote, have the intellect or maturity to organize a rock fight. Okay. (laughs) Which I I always thought, think that's so interesting when defense attorneys insult their own clients to try to prove their (laughs) point. You know what I mean? Yeah. The defense also accused Jack of being an absent and cold father towards Christy, suggesting that he was really at fault for their estrangement. Oh, victim blaming. Great. So Christy might have had a stronger defense than Jeffrey, but this phase of the trial ended the same. After three hours and 15 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Christy guilty of capital murder. However, at the end of it all, the jury ended up sentencing her to life in prison instead of death row. Okay, so we have two different sentences for the same crime. Yeah, so it's a really interesting way the case sort of unfolded in that way. Yeah, I was expecting capital punishment. Shortly after Christie's trial, Brian was also sentenced to life in prison. Both Brian and Christie will be eligible for parole after serving 35 years in prison in 2027. Christie will be 52 and Brian will be 54. Wow. That's actually coming up fairly soon. Yeah, that's not that far away. Four years. Yeah. Jeffrey tried to appeal his case eight times over the next few years, largely on the fact that he received a death sentence while his co-conspirators received life sentences for the same crime. And obviously, this does sound pretty damn unfair, really, when you get Mm -hmm. down to it. Yeah. However, none of his appeals made any sway. And on November 1st, 2000, Jeffrey Dillingham was executed by lethal injection at the age of 27. His final words included an apology, quote, I would like to apologize to the victims of the family for what I did. I take full responsibility for that poor woman's death and for the pain and suffering I inflicted on Mr. Coslow. From there, he recited a prayer, thanked God, and told his family he loved them before being put to sleep. Sometime after the trials were completed, the Associated Press reported details about Karen's will that had never been released before. It turns out that her will had been signed on March 30th, 1990, so about two years before her death. And it's very interesting because it's clear that Karen had fashioned her will specifically to ensure that Christie would never see a dime of her money. The will stated that her beneficiaries would include her natural children, but shall not include stepchildren. Of course, she didn't have natural children, but she was op- she was opening that possibility up in the state of the will while making sure that that did not include Christy. This is very, it's kind of similar to a Patreon episode that we just did where all this planning to kill someone and get money and then it's all for naught because of a will, what's in the will. Yeah, I mean, it's always about money, it seems like, isn't it? Yeah. In addition, Karen had left Jack a $500,000 trust, but it specified that he could not receive any money until a specific date in the future that was after Christy had finished high school. So Karen had made it so Christy wouldn't be able to see any of that money either. She just made it that so that Jack couldn't inadvertently 
give her some of the money to help her out. Yeah, essentially. Or if Jack died, the money wouldn't go to Christy because she was no longer one of his dependents. Yeah. She was now an adult. Mm -hmm. As far as the number that Jeffrey and Brian said Christy told them that she stood to to inherit $12 million, no one knows where that figure came from. Karen's estate was around a million dollars at the time. And sure, Christy might have expected to get an inheritance from Jack as well, plus maybe insurance money or something like that. But either way, it would have been a far cry from $12 million. So she was either seriously deluded when it came to the wealth of her parents, or she had just been lying to convince the others to convince the others that she had the money to make the murders worthwhile. Hmm. Which one do you think it was? A little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could see how she would have a gross overestimate of, of the worth of the estate just to lure the killers Oh, yeah. In. I mean, yeah. she's a kid. She doesn't understand how any of those yeah. things work, you know? Mm-hmm. And it sounds a lot better to be like, you could get a million dollars or two million dollars. Oh, absolutely. That's a, that's a fat number. That's an enticing number. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly why this ended up going on the way mm-hmm. it did. Jack has done very well for himself since the attack. He sold the house shortly after Karen's death and moved to the small and very wealthy community of Westover Hills. If you thought Rivercrest was mm. was rich, apparently Westover Hills is like one of the mo- richest areas of the country. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, it's a suburb of Fort Worth. I've never really heard of it, but I mean, I wouldn't because I'm not rich, I guess. <laughs> uh, he has since remarried. He also did end up starting his own business, that construction supply company. Oh, and cool. it so was he, a he got around to doing it. Yeah. And it was a incredible success. And he is still in business today. Well, good for Jack. Jack has also served on the city council of Westover Hills since 2012. Karen Coslow's legacy, meanwhile, continues to live on in Fort Worth. Before her death, Karen had been working on a concept for a charity fashion show to benefit the Texas Ballet Theater. And the event was actually planned for March 24th, just 12 days after her murder. Well, the company decided to continue Karen's work while paying their respects to Karen for all of her hard work for them. So they created a huge annual event called the Karen Coslow Fashion Show and Luncheon. It's a huge event where the ballet dancers model the designer's clothes. And, you know, it's a huge charity thing, lots of people. And the whole enterprise benefits the company's scholarship program. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It is actually one of the two holiday fundraisers for the company held every year. The other one being the Tutu Chic in Dallas. Huh. That's just really interesting. I think I stopped doing ballet around like 1996. So, uh... That's interesting. I wonder, like, if any of my friends that I danced with, like, were in this fashion show. Maybe. Yeah. Wow. In 1993, Karen's family donated two bronze sculptures to the Fort Worth Garden Club. They were sculptures of two young women. They're sort of supposed to look like goddesses or nymphs sort of frolicking in the sun. And if we remember, the Fort Worth Garden Club was one of the organizations Karen worked with. Yeah. The club, in turn, arranged the sculptures to be installed at the Fort Worth Botanic Gardens. I was wondering if that's what you were going to say. Because there are those big bronze sculptures out there. Yes, they're just to the right of the main entrance to the conservatory. And they're set up as a little memorial to Karen Coslow. That's amazing. I never knew that. I didn't know that either. And I thought that was a really interesting 
sort of part of the of the history of Fort Worth. We don't live there anymore. We're still always back in town, though. Oh, and of sure. course, it's a city that remains close to us because we lived there, you know, practically our whole lives. Oh, yeah. And so many times, like my mom has been to the Botanic Gardens for the Garden Club uh, plant show. And like we used to go up there all the time to to do stuff up there. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. I'm glad her legacy lives on. I'm glad that Jack is doing really well for himself. Absolutely, yeah. That's awesome. Ugh, that's just, I feel, it feels so terrible about like what happened to Karen though and like everything else. Um, it's unfathomable to imagine something like this ever happening. And of course, if you're Jack, like, I don't even know what you're thinking once you like awake in the hospital and then you start thinking they're coming after you and yeah. you're innocent. And then you find out that your daughter's involved and her boyfriend that you just recently met. Just, I mean, misery after misery for that poor man. It's just yeah. awful. Yeah. What he went through. Wow. But you painted a really detailed uh, picture for us with the the case that you presented today. And it was really fascinating. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I hope you all thought this was an interesting case. And it's certainly a historical one as well. Important, I think, for the city of Fort Worth. Yeah, for sure. I definitely went down memory lane a few times in this episode. I knew most of the places you talked about today. I know. It, that was another thing, too. Well, thank you so much, everyone. And now it is time for some good news. That's right. And I know I love to cook. Do you love to cook, Aaron? Mm, it's fine. Well, how about some good cooking news? Okay. Right after this. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the show and to the part of the show that I really enjoy, which is the pick-me-up section. This is good news. And today's good news story comes to us from Sarah Acosta of KSAT News San Antonio and Vincent T. Davis of the San Antonio Express News. Now, Aaron, both of us have worked in the food industry, the service industry, restaurants, uh, stuff like that at some point. Uh, I've worked in a couple of upscale, professional, chef-run kitchens and some excellent restaurants. And the atmosphere in those can be extremely high pressure, um, you know, tense, stressful. Uh, there's, you know, sharp objects flying around, dishes. There are? <laughs> well, flying through the air? <laughs> sometimes. I mean, there's at least, uh, you know, knives involved and uh, there's plates that can break, glassware, so on and so forth. It's not the kind of environment that uh, you would expect to find like peace and focus and harmony in. But that's exactly the environment that Victoria Taylor found when she found professional cooking. Now, Victoria Taylor is not an adult yet. She is a 12-year-old junior executive sous chef in San Antonio. 
That sounds fancy. It is. It's a really hard title to get, and it usually takes till you're in your 20s or 30s to become an executive sous chef. It's a high title to attain in the culinary world. Now, Victoria has been training in professional kitchens since she was eight years old. And just this past year, when she was 11, she was actually awarded the coveted title of executive sous chef and her white coat that has her name on it and the, um, the, the professional organization that gave her the title of sous chef. Also for the past two years, Victoria has not only been competing in team cooking competitions, but also leading her team of junior chefs that range between 10 and 17 to several championships and culinary awards. So wow. she's like a team leader of these junior chefs. Wow, that's crazy. And you know, this junior executive sous chef is also quite the entrepreneur as she has already started her own catering business called Chef Vicky. Now, the proceeds of this organization go to her charity and also uh, her mother and her sister help her run it. So she's not doing this all by herself. Though Victoria's future appears very bright now, it wasn't always that way. According to her mother, Tori Warford, Victoria was diagnosed with ADHD, uh, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, at an early age, and it really affected her. And you know, her mom, Tori, told KSAT News that her daughter had been struggling with ADHD for a while, and she was looking for other options to, to help her out. And she switched her over to a different educational program that had a local junior chef program at the school. And, you know, after she got into this, this junior chef program, Victoria took to working and training in the kitchen immediately, saying, quote, it helps me to stay focused and helps my mind uh, stay off of bad things. I can't play in the kitchen. I have to do things around heat. There's all kinds of stuff I have to worry about. I have to be on my game. But I like to learn how to make different food and learn new skills, and I pride myself on my time in the kitchen. Now, after joining this program when she was eight, Victoria went from uh, having issues and failing in her classes uh, to becoming a model student in all of her classrooms and a straight A student. Really seemed to have an effect on her school life and her day-to-day -day life. She even cooks for her mom, who's a single mom and has uh, multiple kids, and she makes all the meals at home. So her mom doesn't have to when she gets home from a long day's work. Now, this past year, Victoria has catered several events, and she prides herself on specializing in several different foods, from soul food to French and Mexican cuisines, and has even catered an all-vegan menu for an event. This Valentine's Day, she took several orders for romantic pre-made dinners that were delivered to homes all around San Antonio. And as far as what's next, Victoria is saving up for college and already receiving interest for scholarships to highly regarded culinary schools. Her dreams include opening a restaurant one day called Victoria's Cafe and working to develop cooking classes for other kids who have ADHD like her. Quote, I want to help other people, not only people with ADHD because I suffer from ADHD, but because I want people to know that if they want to do a dream, you can, you just have to pursue it. And sometimes people need to find their way into cooking to pursue other things in their life. Oh, that's so sweet. That sounds really great that she found something that's so rewarding for her at such a young age, yeah. especially. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just so well-spoken and professional for like a 12-year-old. Yeah. Uh, it was very surprising. I was like, wow, she's already an executive sous chef at the age of 12. That's I crazy. I know. That's, that's absolutely incredible. 
And I love the idea of her developing cooking classes for other neurodivergent children. Yeah. That sounds like a really great opportunity to help others in a way that she's been helped. Yeah, and I, I've heard of other things similarly uh, being done with like art classes and stuff like that for neurodivergent kids. And it's great to like do that in a cooking environment. That's, yeah. That seems really cool. Well, excellent. Congratulations. Yeah, go Victoria. I can't wait to eat at Victoria's Cafe the next time I'm in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us in the after show. We have some lovely people who need to be thanked for just being so wonderful. That's right. And that's our Patreon crew. Let's start off with our wonderful Texas Rangers. Yes, let's do it. We have Amanda Mattaford, Blue Hills Ranch, Don Maloney, E.G., Gail Parker, Jamie Gray, Jennifer and Magnolia, Jessica Layfield, Leah Darty, Mickey Sweet, and Sarah Nicholson. Thank you, Texas Rangers. Y'all are awesome. We love you so much. And we also have some people that need shout outs, and those include Megan Romero, Jennifer Davidson, John Ritchie, Sheila Tubbs and Leah. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, we'll have some more stuff for you next month. We've got that two-parter coming up. It's a big one. It's a big fish. So yeah, and hopefully it should be something uh, interesting. It's a case that we've wanted to cover for a while, so yeah. I'm I'm in I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, it's a big case for sure. But until next time, I think that's all we have for now. So always remember that crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye.